Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So in the middle of all the uh, craziness that is going on in Europe with uh, the Ukraine crisis and everything else, uh, one of the stories that I I think has gotten lost in the scrum is a new report from the IPCC. And it is it is a uh, it's a firecracker. It's uh, it's a stick of dynamite. And I wanted to get on Dr. Michael Mann, the, uh, uh, one of the world's leading climate scientists, the distinguished professor of meteorology, the director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the recipient of the Tyler Prize, the author of numerous books, including The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy, and his most recent book, The New Climate War. You can find his website at michaelmann, with two N's at the end, dot net. And his Twitter handle is Michael E. Mann, M-A-N-N. Uh, Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. It's so nice to have you with us. Well, tell us about this new IPCC report. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be with you, my friend. So, you know, in a sense, these reports uh, don't come as surprises to scientists like myself who work in this field because they're based on the published science, the published science over the last several years. Um, that having been said, um, these reports are our best opportunity to inform the public and policymakers about what the science has to say. And here, again, there really aren't any surprises because we can see the impacts of climate change now in the form of uh, these devastating heat waves and wildfires and floods and superstorms and droughts that we've been facing. What this report does do, however, is connect the dots for us, because since the last major IPCC report back in 2013, there have been some significant developments in the science of what's known as attribution, which is to say we no longer have to say, oh, well, you know, we can never blame any one uh, you know, weather event on climate change, which was sort of like a, a mantra for climate scientists for so many years because we didn't have the tools to connect the dots. Now we have those tools. We can say that many of these extreme uh, weather events, like the heat dome that we saw last summer, like the flooding rains that we faced here in the, uh, in the east in the wake of uh, Hurricane Ida, we can now say that these events would not have been so extreme and so devastating if not for the impact of climate change. And so that really allows the IPCC to say, yeah, devastating 
climate consequences are here, and now it's a question of how bad we're willing to let it get. And two questions came to mind simultaneously. One is, you know, how is the world reacting to this? I mean, is, is, is it completely being lost in the Ukraine scrum? And, and, and secondly, you know, we, we were told a while ago that we've got about a decade left and that sort of thing. Are those timelines for change changing? Well, they're only changing in the sense that we said that a, a couple of years ago. So it's, it's a couple of years later. And, you know, now we have to do even more because that window is shrinking. And the report says as much. The window of opportunity to prevent catastrophic, truly catastrophic warming um, is shrinking. And we've got, you know, less than a decade now to bring our carbon emissions down by 50 percent. And then we've got to bring them down to zero within a couple decades if we are or within a few decades if we are to uh, prevent one and a half celsius that's roughly three degree fahrenheit warming of the planet where we will and in, indeed start to see uh, far worse impact so there is a shrinking window of opportunity uh, but it's still there we're seeing tornadoes in places that never had tornadoes we're seeing uh, mile long storms, these derechos or whatever they're called, that, that you know, uh, most of us didn't even know the word. Be I certainly had never heard the word before. Uh, it's now part of our lexicon. Um, how, what's your sense, I mean, not, not so much as a scientist, but as, a, as an astute observer of, of uh, humanity and, and the United States, um, and you've written several books and you've, you've been in the, in the center of the political firestorm as much as probably any other climate scientist in the world. Um, what's your sense of the will among both the American people and the American political class? I mean, I see that the, uh, the, the, the Petroleum Institute is uh, uh, pushing really, really hard now because of Ukraine to increase production in the United States of fossil fuels. Uh, none of that would even come online for a year or two or three, you know, if we were to start leasing more offshore lands and things like that. But they're taking this opportunity. Um, how tough a, a lift is it going to be for the United States to seriously do something about climate? Well, there's no question, you know, the fossil fuel industry has a lot of politicians on their payroll um, at this point. And we see that even in the Democratic Party, we can't get 50 votes now for meaningful climate legislation with a couple holdouts. Um, that have prevented the passage of the Build Back Better plan with the, clim the, the critical climate provisions that it contains. And what that means is that we, you know, have to exert even more pressure on our politicians. We've got to turn out in droves, not just in the presidential elections, but in the midterm and off-term elections. Because when we don't do that, then the forces of denial, the forces of inaction, the fossil fuel interests and those who promote their agenda are able to elect politicians who will do their bidding rather than what's right for the American people. And so it, it really underscores uh, the, you know, the fundamental importance of, of voting and participating in our democracy. And, of course, we're seeing that you know, now play out on the world stage where a petrostate in Russia um, has in part used the, um, you know, the ransom, essentially, it holds uh, against other nations that, uh, you know, that, that depend upon its fossil fuel exports, um, is, is used that to, uh, in essence, to try to, um, you know, blunt efforts by other countries to step in with this current conflict. And, you know, the irony is, while the fossil fuel disinformation lobby is 
putting out this this, this misinformation, this disinformation um, that you know that the, the the source of the problem somehow is renewable energy, and we need to double down on our fossil fuels. The problem here is our dependence on fossil fuels. It's built up bad actor petrostates like Russia and Saudi Arabia that have had that have increased power and are able to now uh, participate in you know uh, the, the sorts of um, you know, in the case of Russia, participate in uh, this aggression uh, against Ukraine because of the power and wealth that it has attained um, built on its one major natural asset, which is fossil fuels. And so if anything, this latest uh, political crisis underscores the importance of getting off fossil fuels and moving dramatically towards renewable energy. Especially for Europe at the moment. So what I, I know that you're also involved in a lot of these international conferences and, and you collaborate with and have colleagues and friends among scientists and many other nations. Um, uh, you know, you and I both popped up in, in Leo's, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's movie, Ice on Fire, where we were traveling all over the world and talking to these folks. And, and what's your sense of how Europe is doing right now with regard to this? and other countries around the world. And I guess China would be the other big one, um, perhaps India, um, in terms of uh, dealing with fossil fuels. Yeah, well, Europe is, is doing better than we are in the United States right now. Germany has been a leader um, in, in moving away from fossil fuels, but they still depend on fossil fuel exports from Russia. And that was sort of uh, part of the delay, frankly, in uh, Western Europe, uh, European countries stepping in um, and, you know, uh, and pushing back against this Russian incursion was because of this worry that they would lose their access to the natural gas and oil uh, that Russia provides. And so um, while the EU uh, is doing better than we are when it comes to reducing their carbon emissions and they're on track to you know, reduce their carbon emissions by 50 percent uh, this decade, which is what we need to do writ large, um, now, when you look at China, you know, we're talking about the world's largest polluter. Now, keep in mind that the United States is the biggest legacy polluter. We have put more carbon pollution into the atmosphere than any other country, and that puts a huge uh, amount of responsibility on us to lead on this issue. And we are seeing a reemergence of leadership now under the current administration after having pulled out of the, the Paris Accord under Trump. Uh, but China right now currently is the largest emitter, and that means we need them on board as well. One of the things that we've seen is that when there is engagement on the part of the United States uh, with the world community on the climate crisis, we see China and other uh, nations come to the table. That happened under the Obama administration. China was actually um, uh, China had actually exceeded their commitments under the bilateral agreement with the U.S. and under Paris. Uh, but then when Donald Trump came in uh, and threatened to pull out of Paris, that took the pressure off of China and India and others. Now they're back at the table. Uh, but the United States needs to demonstrate leadership in order to get the level of engagement we need from China and India. And that's going to mean that we have to back up the pledges that this administration has made with policy that can actually allow them to make good on those pledges. And that means legislation. And that means turning out and, and, and voting and getting more Democrats in the Senate and the House so that we don't have to um, you know, worry about one or two 
uh, conservative Democrats who can block that entire climate agenda from moving forward. Yeah, the whole mansion cinema problem that we that we all suffer from. What's uh, we just have a minute or so left here before we're going to hit a hard break. What is what is your hope for President Biden's State of the Union address tonight? Well, obviously, you know, uh, we're all sort of, um, you know, captivated right now by what's going on uh, in the Ukraine. And I hope that he makes, you know, he connects the dots here, though. I, I hope that he uses this as an opportunity to explain why it is so dangerous that we remain addicted to fossil fuels. We fight foreign war, uh, wars, dangerous foreign wars. We rely on hostile uh, country petrostates because of our dependence on fossil fuels. If we can get off fossil fuels, if Europe and the rest of the world can get off fossil fuels, then petrostates like Russia are no longer to, uh, able to exert the influence that they're having right now on our, our world politics. Yeah, we're like addicts and, and Saudi Arabia and Russia are our dealers. Is that the metaphor you'd use? That's not a bad analogy at all, Tom. Yeah, and, uh, but it is a, a terrible situation. Dr. Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Meteorology, the director of the Earth Science Systems Center at Penn State University. His latest book, The New Climate War. Check it out. Michael Mann with two N's dot net. His website, Michael E. Mann with two N's over on Twitter. Dr. Mann, thank you so much for dropping by. It's always a pleasure. It's always an honor having you on our program. Thank you. It's my pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Great talking to you. just wanted to uh, share with you this. Uh, this is from Jed, Judd Legum's uh, popular.info newsletter. And the headline is, Fossil Fuel Companies Are Exploiting Russia's Attack on Ukraine. I'll just share parts of the text here. On, on February 24th, the day that Russian forces crossed the Ukraine border, the American Petroleum Institute issued a statement calling for more fossil fuel extraction in the United States. They said it's now critical for the United States to allow more pipelines, drilling, and fracking. On Twitter, the American Petroleum Institute published a lengthy thread arguing that the crisis in Ukraine made it imperative to unleash American fossil fuel energy. Quote, release permits for energy development on federal lands, issue an offshoring leasing plan for the next five years, accelerate energy permitting infrastructure, and reduce regulatory and legal uncertainty. 27 Republican senators wrote a letter to Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, basically echoing these talking points from the American Petroleum Institute, the lobbying arm of the fossil fuel industry in the United States. In the last five, now keep in mind, first of all, all of the things that the API and these 27 Republican senators are calling for will do nothing over the next couple of years. Leasing more land, changing our, our regulations, uh, accelerating permitting for infrastructure, uh, all those things, you know, yeah, they'll increase fossil fuel production two years, three years, four years, five years, 10 years out, but they're gonna do nothing right now for this, for this uh, uh, fossil fuel shortage that mostly Europe is experiencing, not the United States. If we were to simply go back to the ban that we had before the Trump administration, at law, under law in the United States, it was illegal to export crude oil. And thus, during the Obama administration, we became energy independent. Trump talked about it constantly as if he had done it, but it, was, it happened under the Obama administration. Trump changed the law so that we could export that oil. So now we're still, we are still importing oil from Russia and we are still importing oil from Saudi Arabia. 
These companies are ripping us off. And in the last five years, those 27 senators that I just named, or that I just referenced, have received a combined total of $4,270,530 from the oil and gas industry's uh, political action committees, and over $6 million, the same senators from executives and other employees of oil and gas companies. The lead author of the letter, Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy, has received $294,600 from oil and gas industry PACs and $290,084 from oil and gas industry employees just since 2017. This is what's going on. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you, picking up your phone calls. By the way, we have another quick guest here at the bottom of the hour to talk about this case that's going before the Supreme Court. I'll be doing a, uh, a nationwide Zoom call, my book signing event. You don't have to just be in Portland. It'll be at, uh, at Powell's Books. Powell's.com is the website. You have to register for it on March 8th at 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. Eastern time. So check it out at powells.com. We've tweeted it. It's also on our Facebook page. You can check that out. Two quick stories I wanted to share with you. The first is that the uh, GOP has now been outed down in Florida. Republican Party canvassers, this from rawstory.com, tricked uh, South Florida voters, many of them elderly or immigrants, into switching their party affiliation to the Republican Party last year. The reporters, this is a quote from the Miami Herald. The reporters knocked on every door where someone's party affiliation had changed. Four out of every five voters who spoke to the Herald said that their party affiliation had been changed without their knowledge. In all but six cases, records show they were registered as Republicans by canvassers from the Republican Party of Florida. The average age of the people whose vote was changed, 76. One election attorney called it elder abuse. Uh, many described being misled by canvassers who said that they needed a new voter ID card, or they needed to update their address, or they needed to verify their signatures. Now, why would Republicans be doing this in this one particular county in Florida? Well, it turns out that in this area, that where they are switching largely elderly Hispanic voters uh, to the Republican Party, the, in the last election, the state Senate district, the Republican won by 32 votes. This was also one of those districts where they ran a ghost candidate. In other words, they, you had a Democrat running and they, they got some guy 
uh, who, who to run as a Democrat who had the same last name to create voter confusion, these ghost candidates that the Republicans put up. And so it appears that they're doing this so that they can brag about the fact that, or it's not the fact, so that they can brag that uh, elderly and Hispanic voters in, in this region in Florida are fleeing the Democratic Party in droves. Just look at the voter registration. Again, uh, an area where the guy in the Florida Senate who won, won by 32 votes, and it took a ghost candidate to get him that close. June in Hollister, North Carolina. Hey, June, what's up? Yes, uh, Tom, you mentioned the letter that the 27 senators sent pushing fossil fuels. Other than calling my senator's office, is there anybody can find out who those senators are? That's a good question. Hang on just a minute. Let me see if I can... Yeah, if you go if you go to popular.info and the top story will be fossil fuel companies are exploiting Russia's attack on Ukraine and open that story and it's it's free and you know should be easily available. In that story is a hot link to the letter itself. So uh, uh, right now I don't have the time to do it and read them to you. I'm sorry. But that would be the way to do it, Jim. One more question, the DeJoy has that contract been finalized as far as the gas and diesel. I don't know diesel. if it's set in stone, and I don't know how revocable it might be if we get rid of DeJoy. I'm sorry, June. I, I, just, I, I just don't know. But thanks for the call. Sarah in New York City. Hey, Sarah, what's on your mind today? There are U.S. interests outside of the Christian right and Trump celebrating this war. Our dominant industry, military, hardware, and software, think Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Boehm, Northrop Grumman. These companies are achieving record profits. Oh, they celebrate every war. And, and then our fossil fuel industry yeah. is about to capture the Nord Stream 2 pipeline market, which they have been hoping for for a long time. And, and then there's been relatively little discussion um, regarding U.S. military policy of supporting NATO expansion um, the result of doing so was foretold by ex-U.S. Ambassador Matlock, uh, ex-U.S. Ambassador to Russia, who argued for the necessity of honoring the commitment not to threaten Russia with NATO. And everyone should recall the U.S. response when weapons were brought to our doorstep into Cuba. And this lack of respect for other nations, this hegemonic, militaristic, bullying, arrogant response has been the opposite of what we need, which is true diplomacy, mutual respect. And indeed, um, voices out of Ukraine have been demanding, please give us diplomacy as an end to this war. All good, Sarah, except that you've got one very large, very powerful country, the 11th largest economy in the world, the largest nuclear force in the world, attacking uh, a much smaller adjacent country and saying that they're doing so because they don't even recognize that as a country. They don't, Putin has said he doesn't recognize Ukraine as a country. That has oh, nothing not to do with the American military industrial complex or the oil industry. And yeah, we've made a whole lot of mistakes in our history. There's no doubt about it, but we're here now. But I, yeah, right, but recognizing them will help us move towards diplomacy. I agree. Rather than we're the good guys and they're the bad ones. I agree, I agree. Right. Thank, thank, thank you very you. much, sir. Daniel in Bakersfield, California. Hey, Daniel, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's on your mind today? Hey, good afternoon there, Tom. I listen to you every day. I, I'm out on my route. I deliver pastries to these uh, convenience stores. 
and I put you on my AirPods. Sounds like a tempting job. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it, I'm an independent contractor, so I, I work. I buy it from the bakery, and I deliver it to these, yeah. you know, these chain stores. But the reason I was calling is because I even ordered a, an electric truck so I can convert it over. But wow. the reason I was calling is we could do our part. I even wrote an op-ed. Bakersfield is a little red dot right in the middle of California, the Kern County. Mm-hmm. Where's where Kevin McCarthy is from. And the reason I was calling is because I've had an electric car for six years, a Chevy Bolt. Goes about 230 miles on a charge. I put in, a, I installed a charger in my garage, and I put 100% offset solar panels on my roof. Wow. I have a $10 tie-in bill for my electricity, and that's a 2,500 square foot home. And I went ahead and took advantage of the subsidies that was offered, you know, and I bought them. And then they gave me, you know, on my taxes, I got to deduct the mm-hmm. uh, 26% or 30% of the time. And my wife, she drives this car. I mean, picks up grandkids and just drives it everywhere. And literally, it's got 60,000 miles. And the electric cars do not have any, any maintenance involved in them. We put a set of tires on it at Costco, and that's it. Yeah, there's no I mean, there's they, no it, engine, there's no oil to change, there's no filters to replace. It's you know it's got a battery and a couple of motors. There's a, there's several industries that are fighting it. Even the car industry is fighting it because yeah. what's going to happen to these techs? It's going to be more like a more like a a, a, a phone tech or a yeah. electronic. And my tech. understanding is that they're actually you know as they make them at scale, they're they're much more profitable than gasoline engines because you know the electric motors just have basically. You know the, the the armature and the and the and the wires. I mean, you know, it's it's straightforward stuff. Whereas making <laughs> engines is really complicated. Gasoline engines. And then they ask you the the well, how long do the batteries last? I tell them the batteries last longer than that engine will ever last. Yeah, there you go. And they yeah, got pickup yeah. like you can't believe, Daniel. And as as you well, well they know, they do. It's just incredible. Uh, I, and I ordered the new Ford uh, Lightning, and uh, I mean, I reserved it, and I'm in, I'm in line for it. So I'm going to buy a little so cargo, cool. uh trailer so cool. to pull my stuff around, and, and we could do this, man. I wrote an op-ed yeah. here at Bakersfield. Yeah. I got it, Daniel. I'm sorry, but I'm, we're out of time. But thank you. We'll be right back. I want to talk about the Supreme Court case that could destroy the EPA, and then I'll be back with your calls. So stick around. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book in today's uh, Tom Hartman Book Club is On Fire, The Burning Case for Green New Deal by Naomi Klein. This is from the epilogue, the very end of the book, and it's titled The Capsule Case for Green New Deal. Critics of the Green New Deal have plenty of serious arguments for why all this is doomed. Political paralysis in Washington is real. Even in a world where climate change, denying Republicans, were swept out of power, there would still be plenty of centrist Democrats convinced that their constituents had no appetite for radical change. The plans are expensive, and getting the budgets approved will be a Herculean effort. A better course of action, we hear, would be to advance climate policies that appeal to many on the right, like a shift from coal to nuclear power, or a small tax on carbon that returns the revenues as a dividend to every citizen. The main trouble with these incremental approaches is that they simply won't get the job done. In order to win support from Republicans soaked in fossil fuel money, The price on carbon would be too low to make much of an impact. Nuclear power is expensive and slow to roll out compared with renewables, and that's not to mention the risks associated with uranium mining and waste storage. The truth is we cannot lower emissions as steeply and as rapidly as required to swerve off our perilous trajectory without a sweeping industrial and infrastructure overhaul. 
The good news is that the Green New Deal isn't nearly as impractical or unrealistic as its many critics claim. I've made the case for why that is throughout the book, but what follows are nine more reasons the Green New Deal has a fighting chance, a chance that will increase every time we go out and make the case. One, it will be a massive job creator. Every part of the world that has invested heavily in renewables and efficiency has found these sectors to be much more powerful job creators than fossil fuels. When New York State made a commitment to get half its energy from renewables by 2030, it immediately saw a spike in job creation. The accelerated timeline of the U.S. Green New Deal will turn it into a jobs machine. Even without federal support, indeed with active sabotage from the White House, the green economy is already creating more jobs than oil and gas. According to the 2018 U.S. Energy and Employment Review, jobs in wind, solar energy efficiency, and other clean energy sectors outnumbered fossil fuels by a rate of 3 to 1. This is happening because of a combination of state and municipal incentives and the plummeting costs of renewables. A Green New Deal would take the industry supernova while ensuring that the jobs have salaries and benefits comparable to those offered in the oil and gas sector. There's no shortage of research to support this. For instance, a 2019 study on the job impacts of a Green New Deal-style program in the state of Colorado found that many more jobs would be created than lost. The study, published by the Department of Economics and Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, looked at what it would take for the state to achieve a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030. It found that roughly 585 non-management jobs would be lost, but that with an investment of $14.5 billion a year in clean energy, quote, Colorado will generate about 100,000 jobs per year in the state. There are many more studies with similarly striking findings. A plan put forward by the U.S. Blue-Green Alliance, a body that brings together unions and environmentalists, estimated that a $40 billion annual investment in public transit and high-speed rail for six years would produce more than 3.5 million jobs during that period. And according to a report from the European Transport Workers Federation, comprehensive policies to reduce emissions in the transport sector by 80% would create 7 million new jobs across that continent, while another 5 million clean energy jobs in Europe would slash electricity emissions by 90%. Number two, paying for it will create a fairer economy. As the 2018 IPCC report on keeping warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius made clear, if we don't take transformative action to lower emissions, the costs will be astronomical. The panel's estimate is that the economic damages of allowing temperatures to increase by 2 degrees Celsius, as opposed to 1.5, would hit $69 trillion globally. Of course, rolling out a Green New Deal would have large costs as well, and the plan's advocates have pointed to a variety of ways this can be financed. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said that the U.S. version should be financed the way any previous emergency spending has been, by the U.S. Congress simply authorizing the funds, backstopped by the Treasury, the world's currency of last resort. According to New Consensus, the think tank closely associated with their policy proposals, because, quote, the Green New Deal will produce new goods and services to keep pace with and absorb new expenditures, there is no more reason to let fear about financing halt progress than there was to let it halt wars or tax cuts, end quote. The European Spring proposal for a Green New Deal, meanwhile, calls for a global minimum corporate tax rate to capture the tax revenue that the Apples and Googles of the world currently dodge with transnational schemes. It also calls for a reversal of monetary orthodoxy with public investment floating green bonds supported by central banks. Quote, to address the true existential threat that we face today, we must reverse the economic policies that brought us to this brink. Austerity means extinction, end quote. Some analysts, like Christian Parenti, 
have emphasized that federal governments can drive the transition with their purchasing policies. In short, there are all kinds of ways to raise financing, including ways that attack untenable levels of wealth concentration and shift the burden to those most responsible for climate pollution. And it's not hard to figure out who that is. We know, thanks to research from the Climate Accountability Institute, that a whopping 71% of greenhouse gas emissions since 1988 can be traced to just 100 corporations. On Fire by Naomi Klein. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. Uh, Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Amy Westervelt, uh, investigative journalist, host of the most listened to climate podcast, Drilled, and a new climate uh, podcast about climate lawsuits uh, titled Damages. The uh, links to those are podlink.to slash damages or drilledpodcast.com. Amy's Twitter handle is Amy Westervelt, W-E-S-T-E-R-V-E-L-T, uh, over on Twitter. Amy, welcome to the program. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case that, as far as I can tell, is about a program, a federal program, that literally never went into place. What's going on with this? Correct. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, there was a, a suit filed um, around the Clean Power Plan back in you know, 2016, 2015, and of course, the Clean Power Plan was never actually implemented. This is Obama's. So you, this is Obama's Clean Power Plan, yes. Um, so this is, the case is West Virginia versus EPA. It started as an argument about the Clean Power Plan. The Clean Power Plan has still never been implemented. Um, so it's it's unclear why the Supreme Court is, is continuing to hear this case, but they heard oral arguments on Monday. They could still at this point decided not to issue a ruling that would be in keeping with all precedent. But, you know, we have a very strange court at the moment. So it's a little bit um, up in the air what they will do. Right. Now, um, 
Neil Gorsuch, uh, I, these guys have these these funny words that they come up with to justify their wackadoodle theories. Uh, you know, Scalia used to say, I'm an originalist. I'm channeling the, the founders like he <laughs> right. knew what John Adams was thinking. And, and uh, you know, he knew uh, his intention. Right. Yes. As, <laughs> as if as if Scalia had no idea that, you know, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson hated each other so much over their politics right. that the last right. two years that Jefferson was Adams's vice president. They literally didn't talk and they wouldn't be in the same building together. I mean, you know, yeah. but, but he could channel them and he knew what they all thought. So anyhow, that was that old scam. Now, now we've got Neil Gorsuch and he's got a new scam uh, being a textualist. In other words, I understand exactly what these words mean and only yeah. I understand what these words mean. And one of yeah. Gorsuch's scams, if I understand this correctly, which is a complete repudiation, in my opinion, of, I mean, going back to John Jay, is, uh, of, of, of the Supreme Court precedent, is to say that if Congress passes a law that says, for example, we're going to create an agency called the Environmental Protection Agency, and we're going to empower that agency to protect the environment. And the EPA mm -hmm. says, okay, part of the environmental damage is happening because of carbon in the atmosphere, and so we're going to regulate carbon. Now, that all seems common sense, but Neil Gorsuch has come out and said, not in this specific case, but in, 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 as much as, and correct me if I have any of this wrong, um, Neil Gorsuch has come out and said, no, if Congress wanted the EPA to regulate carbon, the law had to say the EPA may regulate carbon. If the Congress wanted the EPA to regulate benzene, the law had to have the word benzene in it. If Congress wanted mm -hmm. the EPA to regulate gas fumes at the gas pump, which they do, it had to have gas fumes at the gas pump added. In other words, Congress right. should have done this micromanagement. Congress should have held months and months of hearings. Congress should have hired hundreds of experts and scientists, as the EPA does. And Congress should have come to these conclusions, and then the EPA would simply be the cop on the beat who enforces the rules. Um, it, right. it seems to me like that insane, frankly, originalist mm -hmm. theory that Neil Gorsuch has been pitching for most of his uh, career. His mother, of course, was the disgraced former head of the EPA under Reagan. She had to dis you know, resign after three years under a cloud of, of scandal and controversy. Um, that, you know, yeah. that, that this is just a vehicle for Neil Gorsuch's wackadoodle idea, and, and and apparently he's got a few other conservatives on board with it. Yeah, I think I think Amy Coney Barrett is a a, a real like friend and ally. Well, her <laughs> father was a lawyer for what? Chevron, wasn't it? Shell. She was Shell. Shell. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you're describing is something called the non-delegation doctrine, and it basically means that Congress can't delegate anything to regulatory agencies. In a nutshell, um, and it has only ever been invoked two times in the history of the court, both in 1936. So that kind of tells you the timeline that Neil Gorsuch wishes he was living in. Right. <laughs> you know? um, and yeah, I do think that it could come up in this case. It hasn't, it wasn't included in any of the briefings for the case, but it did come up in questioning from both Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett. Um, along with another kind of related thing that's called the major questions doctrine. So this is basically that, you know, Congress shouldn't leave any major questions up to agencies to figure out. Um, and they are absolutely embracing this in general. Uh, we saw the major questions doctrine used to toss out um, OSHA vaccine requirements. We saw it used to get rid of the eviction moratorium. 
that's another one that, you know, it has existed since 1980 and it's been used five times before this year. This year, it's already been invoked three times, including in this case. So we're starting to see, okay, these are the the tools that the right wing is going to try to use to roll us back to really essentially a pre-New Deal era. Right. That is, I mean, that's the goal. Yeah. And, and, and uh, this, this also seems like, you know, the fulfillment of the dream of David Koch, yeah. who has now passed away. But yes. in 1980, he ran for vice president on the libertarian ticket on a platform of eliminate the EPA, eliminate yep. the Labor Department, eliminate the Education Department, eliminate all regulatory agencies, period, full stop, eliminate yep. the IRS. The only thing we should have is the military and, and, and local communities can fund their police departments. And we have to have the court system so that corporations can litigate fraud issues. And that's right. it. And, and rid of public schools, too, importantly. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, he didn't want any public schools. And so yeah. if, which raises a question, Amy Westervelt, if... Uh, you know, with the great podcast, Drilled and Damages, by the way, just to, I, I want to plug your work because it's so, it's so vital. Um, if the Supreme Court rules that, you know, using e either of those doctrines, um, that the EPA can't regulate carbon in this case mm -hmm. uh, without congressional action. Does that mean then that the Food and Drug Administration cannot uh, look for salmonella in meat because salmonella, that word doesn't appear in the enabling legislation? Does that mean that the, or the U.S. Department of Agriculture, excuse me, does that mean that the Food and Drug Administration can't regulate which pharmaceuticals require a prescription and which ones don't because the words, mm -hmm. you know, Valium and Cipro don't appear in the legislation? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the direction that it's headed. In this case, because it's, um, because it's about a policy that doesn't exist, I, I like just it seems so laughable that they're um, continuing to even discuss it. But because it's about a policy that doesn't exist, um, they can't actually rule on anything. All they can do is give what's called an advisory ruling, which historically federal courts have not um, been allowed to give. But, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what they're going to do in this situation. Um, so they can issue an advisory ruling that effectively warns EPA off of uh, regulating greenhouse gas emissions, particularly from power plants. Um, I think it might be slightly limited by the um, the original filing to power plants, right. but still it's a pretty, it's a slippery slope here. And I think that what we're seeing really clearly with this case is that we're gonna see a lot more of this type of argument against um, the EPA being able to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, period. Yeah, yeah. well, I, th th this is my concern too, is that is that they may do like they did with Citizens United. Um, tell yeah. me if it's too late for that. I mean, Citizens United was originally a very narrow case about yeah. whether this movie that these guys wanted to produce about how terrible Hillary Clinton was mm -hmm. uh, could be shown 90 days within the 90 day window before the election because it was considered by the uh, original court that adjudicated it. It was considered a campaign uh, thing and, and it had to be listed as a campaign contribution, mm -hmm. essentially. And they weren't doing that. And so that very narrow piece of law, the court went back to, to the, the Citizens United people and said, 
hey, blow this up huge and make it all about whether corporations are persons and whether, you know, uh, free, you know, uh, politicians being owned by by billionaires is free speech. And we'll we'll really do something with this. And of course, we got Citizens United out of that. Is it possible that this could lead to a similar outcome that basically guts the EPA? Uh, I feel like because they can't really issue a binding ruling, I don't think that this case in particular could end end there. But I think that this line of thinking could end there and that I think it'll be not too long before we have another case that, you know, they can rule on. And it looks like what they want to do is say that only Congress has the authority to pass laws um, around regulating greenhouse gas emissions. And why do they want that? Because they know that Congress won't do it. Right. Um, The wonderful filibuster. Yeah. You know, it's just like, um, yeah, it's it's quite um, it's quite disappointing because also, you know, everyone's been like, oh, Biden needs to do executive actions on this. Well, if every time he does, it's going to wind up in this argument. Right. Then where are we at? Then you've got an even bigger mess. Amy Westervelt, check out uh, drilledpodcast.com and podlink.to slash damages for her two podcasts, Drilled and Damages. You can follow her on Twitter at Amy Westervelt, V-E-L-T. Amy, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Great talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And I will pick up your calls on the other side of this break. It's my Tom Hartman program, home of the political revolution. Stefan in Mentor, Ohio. Thank Putin you. Has got the, Putin has got the, the world under his nuclear tongue right now. I mean, he's threatening. Just a threat alone is a major issue worldwide. Okay, now, tr- Putin has been Trumpified. When Trump went to Helsinki, he threw the United States national intelligence under the bus and he says he says to Putin, You got a green light, buddy. Yep. Why? Why? Because the oligarchs Trump owes the oligarchs billions of dollars. Yeah, they own him. They have been propping they him up since him. the eighties. Absolutely. The other guy. Well, that, since that, the nineties, excuse me. The other guy that that owns the the Trump world and the Kushners is the Saudi Arabian prince. Yeah, and I'm and the head of the UAE. And the head of the UAE. And uh, I, I would not be surprised to learn that Kushner gave the Saudis a nuclear weapon for. $500 million loan that the Kushners needed to support, you know, his, his ventures. Yeah, I think that money ultimately came out of Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund. This was when Trump was president. Kushner went over there and was begging for a billion dollars because the bill was coming due on 666 Fifth Avenue. Uh, that he overpaid by probably three, four hundred million dollars for this building because, you know, his, 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 when his father got out of prison, his advice to his son was um, marry a wealthy, powerful woman. Um, and uh, number one, 
Number two, buy a newspaper, and of course he bought the New York Examiner. And number three, buy a really, really fancy office building in New York, and, and your future will be set. And that's exactly what Jared Kushner did. He married Ivanka Trump, he did, and, and, and he wildly overpaid for the building. The bill was coming due for it, uh, the short-term bill on his mortgage. And so he went, to, he went to Qatar and said, hey, you know, cash out some of your sovereign wealth fund and give me a billion bucks. They said no. And what happened next? You know, uh, Mr. Bonesaw in Saudi Arabia and his buddies in the United Arab Emirates cut off Kuwait. Kuwait is our ally. Kuwait is where we've got, you know, the deep water fleet in, in that region located. It's, it's where CENTCOM is, uh, the Middle Eastern, you know, headquarters for our military is. And yet, during the Trump presidency, we supported Saudi Arabia in trying to starve, cutting off their supplies. And then finally, Cutter said, OK, OK, we'll give the money to Jared. We'll give the money to Jared. And Jared walked off with the money and the, the blockade just vanished. Right. I mean, what yeah. astonishes me, Stefan, is that the average American has no idea that that happened when it literally happened right in front of all of us on the front pages of the newspapers at the time. I'm wondering how this is going to play out, Stefan. I mean, you know, is Kushner it looks like Kushner is now sitting on over a billion dollars on top of the billion dollar loan he got for his building because now he's gone back to the united arab emirates and other groups in the middle east and said uh, i'm going to create an investment fund wouldn't you love to put some of your money in an investment fund yeah. and sure yeah. enough they gave yeah. money to jared kushner and ivanka trump and you know i think when donald goes down and he's bankrupt and broke and and uh, you know all he has left is mar-a-lago I think Jared is going to walk away from this a billionaire. I, I really do. And Ivanka as well. And all because Trump brought them into the White House and said, okay, you guys, you can mess with foreign policy, make some money. It's insane. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. Boy, what a day. So much of the, that has been going on here. Paul in uh, Ambler, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Um, I've got two concepts I'd like to convey to try to get some understanding of the dilemma that we're in. Number one, the internal mindset of the Russian elite, not the people at large, but the people that come up through their their institutions, you know, their Chicago School of Economics, their you know, Wharton School of Finance, they have counterparts over in Russia. They call themselves the Third Rome. And this is a cultural touchstone for them. The Third Rome, R-O-O-M? As in the Roman Empire. Oh, the Third and, Rome, R-O-M-E. Right. Okay. Moscow is the Third Rome. And this goes back huh. hundreds of years. The name of the emperor of the Russian Empire is the Tsar, Caesar. Right. Tsar means Caesar. Right. The me level of megalomania is obvious to anyone that looks at the map of a world. I mean, they're, 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 the, the land mass that they've accumulated 
on a megalomania of, of territorial expansion is beyond anything any empire has built. And the European great powers have built some pretty big empires. Right. But they believe in land. They're not a sea power. They think the more land they have, the better they are. The bigger they are, the more dominant they are. It's very futile. They don't really understand the power and wealth has been eclipsed by the possession of territory and land. They really don't quite get it. Doesn't so, mean they're what, stupid they so, have, so what's the point of this, Paul? The this point history is lesson. the 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 Europeans are also expanding, but they're not expanding on a feudal basis. The European Union has the three hallmarks of a modern nation state. It has the Euro uh, European Union, where you can walk anywhere in 27 different countries, and you don't need a passport. It has a common currency in the Eurozone, the Euro, and it has a common military, right. what any normal nation would have. This ridiculous notion that the eastward expansion of NATO is some sort of prelude to territorial land acquisition and the conquering of the Third Rome is ridiculous. Yeah, but it, but it you're, is the both the excuse that Putin is using and apparently the, the, the thing right. that's animating him. It, it is, however, the rest of the world is modernizing. China is modernizing. India, Pakistan, they're surrounded by nuclear powers. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're I, surrounded by it. They're surrounded by us. We're on the tip of their most uh, eastern part of their, their nation. Aren't we in NATO? I mean, it's yes. kind of hard to avoid NATO when Russia literally spans the globe. Well, and, and you know, what's the NATO, NATO? You know, another NATO country that's right up against Russia is the United States via Alaska. And Alaska used to be part of Russia. So does that go next too? Well, Paul, I got, there, there you go. I, I, I want to get some more callers in here, but thanks for the call. And thanks for making some great points. Elmore in New York City. Hey, Elmore, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Yeah, hi, Tom. I'm, I'm just addressing what you, uh, you just had Kelly on about conspiracy theories and, and how people are crazy if they have these conspiracy theories. You wrote a whole book, Legacy of Secrecy, about a conspiracy theory. You're right. I saw the program in November with, you know, three-hour program with you about Kennedy. So how do you just clarify that a little bit more? How, you know, you, you don't believe in theories? Or I, I think that, you know, sometimes, you know, there is a conspiracy. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that Kelly's point, you know, and one of the points that Kelly made in, in her book and in her, uh, in her article uh, in Daily Beast was that this is a basic human thing. It's an attempt to make sense out of the senseless. And, you know, whether it's an attempt to understand, you know, uh, who, who killed Kennedy or whether there were people on the moon or, you know, whatever it may be, I, I, I think it's just a, a kind of a, a normal human instinct. And, uh, you know, that's 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 what happened. But I mean, when you, in your book, you, you wrote that, I mean, you, you talk about how there was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. It wasn't yeah, just by, Lee Harvey Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think that there was, frankly. So call me a conspiracy <laughs> theorist, too. Uh, Elmore, thanks for the call. Michael in Malby, Washington. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I was looking at the Internet about the far east of Russia. I was understood that there was some separatist talk there. And it said that the that since 2016, that Putin formed the Far East Federal District. He 
grouped a bunch of the states over there together. And he sent 500,000 refugees from the Donbass and the Donetsk to permanently resettle there. Right. And I just wondered, is, is this true or what's going on? Is he trying to depopulate Ukraine of Ukrainians so he can fill it up with Russians? Well, that I mean, to to a certain extent, a lot of that happened during the Soviet times. There, with regard to stories that yeah. are coming out of that region, you know, over the last eight years, it's it's almost impossible to know because I mean, you know, disinformation is just absolutely everywhere. It's just nuts, and uh, so it's it, it's 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 very hard to know. Um, yeah, the the two sites is one of the WorldAtlas.com. I don't know if that's real or not. Probably and not. Then, uh, <laughs> Institute of Modern Russia, also. Yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, the same thing. Again, just because something's published on the internet doesn't make it true. Um, you know, oh. that said, I mean, the, the Donbass region, you know, the big, the big struggle there for both Russia and Ukraine is this fight between ethnic Russian speakers who largely think of themselves as Russian and ethnic Ukrainian speakers who largely think of themselves as Ukrainians. And I mean, you know, we, we saw this in Crimea as well. And, and you know, they had a, 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 it wasn't called a referendum. What's, what's it called, a plebiscite? I forget the word that was used, but yeah. you know, basically a vote in Crimea. Uh, do, yeah. we, do we stay with Ukraine or do we go with Russia? And, and there were people arguing that it was rigged by Russia and there were our people arguing it was rigged by Crimea or by uh, Ukraine. And I frankly don't know, uh, but you know, basically the outcome of that was we wanna go with Russia. Um, that's that's a whole different thing that, from what's going on in Donbass. Nobody, to the best of my knowledge, is suggesting a vote in, in the Donbass region. Oh, Mike? no, but... All right, thank you, Tom. Yeah, thanks a lot, Michael. I gotta run here. And uh, welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016. This is one of the very last chapters is titled Green Revolution. Just as America now faces an unsustainable thirst for energy, so too was Germany faced with a power crisis in the late 1990s. Growing demands for electricity collided with the reality that the country has no oil reserves and a strong bias among its people against building nuclear power plants in the wake of the nearby Chernobyl meltdown. Yet the government knew that the country needed the electricity equivalent of at least one or two new nuclear power plants over the next decade. So how to generate that much electricity without nuclear power? In 1999, progressives in Germany passed the 100,000 Roofs Program, which mandated the banks had to provide low-interest 10-year loans to homeowners sufficient for them to put solar panels on their roofs. They then passed the Renewable Energy Law and integrated the 100,000 Roofs Program into it in 2004. The Renewable Energy Law, REL, mandated that for the next 10 years, the power company had to buy power back from those homeowners at a level substantially above the going rate so that the homeowners' income from the solar panels would equal their loan payments on the panels and would also represent the actual cost to the power company to generate that amount of power by building a new nuclear power plant. At the end of the 10 years, the power company gets to buy solar power at its regular rate and it now has a new source of power without having to pay and maintain and eventually dismantle a nuclear reactor. In fact, while the reactor would have a 20 to 30 year lifespan, the solar panels typically last 50 years. 
for the homeowners, it was a no-brainer. They were getting low-interest loans from banks for the solar panels, and the power companies were paying for the power generated from those panels at a higher rate, uh, high enough to pay off the loans. It was like getting solar power panels for free. If anything, the government underestimated how rapidly Germans would embrace the program, and thus how quickly power would be produced by the program. By 2007, Germany accounted for about half the entire world's solar market. Just that one year, 2007, saw 1,300 megawatts, and a megawatt is a million watts, 1,300 megawatts of solar generating capacity brought online just across Germany. For comparison, consider the average generating capacity of each of the last five nuclear power plants brought online in the United States. That capacity is 1,100 megawatts. So Germany had 1,300 megawatts just in 2007 added. In 2008, Germany added 2,000 megawatts of solar power to their grid, like two nukes. And in 2009, homeowners and businesses put onto their roofs enough solar panels to glean an additional 2,500 megawatts. Although the goal for the first decade of this century was to generate around 3,000 megawatts, eliminating the need to build two new nuclear power plants, the simple no-risk program had instead added over 8,000 megawatts of power, roughly eight nuclear power plants. And because the generation sources were scattered across the country, there was no need to run new high-tension power lines from central generating stations, making it more efficient and less expensive. Meanwhile, as dozens of German companies got into the business of manufacturing and installing solar power systems, the cost dropped by more than half between 1997 and 2007 and continues to plummet. The Germans expect that by 2050, more than a quarter of all their electricity will come from solar. It's now just over 1%. Now, I wrote this book two and a half years ago. Germany this summer produced 100% of their electricity this way. That's how rapidly this has changed just in the last three years. It's really remarkable. Adding to the roughly 12.5% of all German energy currently produced by renewable sources, mostly hydro, but also wind, biomass, and geothermal. The solar panel program has been so successful that the German government is now thinking that it's time to back off and leave this to the marketplace, which they've largely done. And it's not just leaving it to the marketplace. They had to reinvent their grid. There's to be a smart grid to handle all the added electricity that all these solar panels were producing. They have too much electricity now in Germany. Germany is now considering incentives to its world-famous domestic auto industry to manufacture flex-fuel plug-in hybrid automobiles that can get over 500 miles per gallon of strategic gasoline boosted by domestically produced rooftop solar with existing technology. Meanwhile, Denmark has invested billions in having more than half of its entire auto fleet using only electricity by 2030. And China is no slouch when it comes to renewable energy. Although the Chinese continue to bring another dirty coal-fired power plant online about once a week, they surpassed every other nation in the world in 2010 in direct investment in the production of solar and wind power. As the Los Angeles Times reported in March of 2010, U.S. clean energy investments hit $18 billion last year, a report from the Pew Charitable Trust said, a little more than half the Chinese total of $34 billion. Five years ago, Chinese investments in clean energy totaled just $2.5 billion. The United States also slipped behind 10 other countries, including Canada and Mexico, in clean energy investments as a share of the national economy. The Pew report pointed to another factor constraining U.S. competitiveness, a lack of national mandates for renewable energy production or a surcharge on greenhouse gas emissions that would make fossil fuels more expensive. The ultimate power to the people is for homes to have their own solar roofs no longer needing power lines from distant power plants owned by big transnational corporations. The crash of 2016.
We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 